If you would take out the Word of God and turn to Acts chapter 23, we continue our series through the book of Acts. And as you do that, I want to remind you next Sunday, uh, we will seek uh, congregational uh, affirmation on our proposed facility increase here. Uh, we need more space. We need more room. Uh, we've been talking about this for several weeks, and we put this information out last week. Hopefully, you've looked through this. You've tried to think of questions that were answered in here, hopefully. Uh, you're getting all your questions answered. Uh, just to give you a summary, what we're going to do is the wall behind me will come down, uh, and we will expand into a back storage area. Uh, the folks who own the building are going to pay for the renovation of this area. Uh, and so there will be HVAC, the floors painted, the walls painted. All of that will be done behind us. Uh, and then we will put a wall right there with three uh, double doors and then some new bathrooms uh, in the back. And uh, our rent will go up to uh, $8,775 a month. Uh, which is almost a $3,000 increase. Uh, we will get uh, 6,000 square, square more square feet uh, to work with, uh, which is, if you read through the information, which is a great deal still. Uh, and so we will spend $85,000 on bathrooms in the back, uh, and then uh, we will move forward. And so all of the information, all of the questions are there. This is a decision that began really when we moved into these facilities. We looked around and we said, we're going to need more space one day. And so we've been thinking about this uh, for some time now. And we've uh, prayed and planned and thought, what would it be like to even go somewhere else? How, can, how are we going to do that? All of that information is here. Grab one of these uh, as you leave and please ask questions. Uh, uh, there's a list of folks on here that you can ask about what's going on and we will seek that congregational uh, affirmation next Sunday morning. Uh, and just to be very clear, we're not borrowing any money to do this. Uh, we're not taking out a loan. We're not going into debt to do this. If you remember back in October when we launched from Ashland Avenue, we took up a launch offering, which was well over $70,000. And then we have taken in extra this year that will cover all of our expenses on this. And our owners of the building are going to even fix some of the roof back here and, and make it a, uh, better for us. And so really... Uh, it's the best option. And so I'll stop talking about it because there's more important things to do this morning, like preach the Word of God. So that's where we're headed. Uh, and we'll talk, we'll see congregational affirmation for that next week. Please ask questions. Uh, please try to figure out what's going on, uh, and we'll do our best to answer them before next Sunday morning. If you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect Word. Um, we find ourselves in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, is what I'm going to read, and we're going to look at the whole chapter together. And one of the things we see throughout the book of Acts, which I hope is shaping the way that you think about your life, is that the Spirit uses uh, very ordinary means, very ordinary people, ordinary events in time and history to move the gospel from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. But very, uh, we would look upon certain events and not even notice them. We, we think about sort of light shows for Jesus when we get to the book of Acts. 
And yet, most of the book of Acts is just normal folks sharing the gospel and having great boldness and courage. And where does that courage come from? Notice verse 11, the Apostle Paul, the Lord Jesus Christ speaks to him in verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Oh God, we pray that we would see the, the, the glory of your presence with us, the grace, the mercy, the, the uh, amazing reality that those who are following Christ, who've trusted in him, we have been given your spirit. And no matter where we find ourselves, no matter the situation, we can turn and say, the Lord is standing with me. The presence of the Lord through the power of the Spirit, the one who raised Jesus from the dead, is standing with me. And God, as we think about that today, I pray that we would have great boldness and great courage to live and speak the gospel wherever we are, whatever we're going through. God, we would see it as your providence and not just, not just some abstract idea of sovereignty, but whatever we're going through and whatever we're facing is mission for us, is to be used for the sake of Christ from here to the ends of the earth. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Peter Cartwright was a very famous and very colorful Methodist preacher who served in the 1800s preaching the gospel. He actually lived in Logan County, Kentucky. And one day he had an opportunity to preach in the presence of Andrew Jackson in Nashville, Tennessee. And as he was preparing to preach, the elders of the church told Peter Cartwright that Andrew Jackson was going to be there that day that he's going to be in the crowd. And they said to him, Mr. Cartwright, do not offend this man. Do not offend uh, what would be the future president. Don't offend him. And as the service began, General Jackson walked in and he stood over to the side and it was just about the time Cartwright began his sermon. And he approached the pulpit and he said this, Who is General Jackson? Meaning, who in the world is General Jackson? If he doesn't repent and have his soul converted, God will damn his soul to hell as quickly as any unconverted pagan. And everybody went silent. And everybody was freaking out. How could you say this to General Jackson? How could you say this to a man of such importance and such stature? And, and the elders in the church, they, they were scandalized and they ran to General Jackson after the service and they began apologizing to him. To which Andrew Jackson said to the pastor, Sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could whip the world. What courage, what boldness to declare the truth of the gospel no matter what, no matter who's present, no matter authority, no matter what power. And it's the same sort of boldness 
that we see with the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. Sometimes I just look at Paul and think, that man doesn't give a rip. He's just going to preach. He's going to suffer. He's going to hurt. He's going to go through difficulty. And he's going to look anyone he can find in the eye, no matter their power, no matter their authority, no matter their prestige, and he's going to call them to repent and turn to Jesus. And it's that kind of just brass courage that we see here in chapters, we've looked at chapters 21 through 22 so far. We, we see that courage and we wonder... Is Paul going to make it out of Jerusalem alive? Now remember why Paul is in Jerusalem. He has collected an offering throughout the Gentile world, throughout Gentile churches for the Jewish church in Jerusalem. They're going through a hard time, a famine, and there's difficulty, and they need money. And so he is taking money from the Gentile pagan churches to take an offering to the Jerusalem church. And yet Jesus over and over comes to him and says, when you go to Jerusalem, it's going to be rough. You're going to be imprisoned. You're going to be put in chains. But you're going to preach the gospel in Rome. The, the end of your story will happen in Rome, Paul. And so he marches in Jerusalem with great courage, knowing he can't be stopped in Jerusalem. Jesus has already promised Rome to him. That's where he's headed. But we still look at him and we say, Paul, we know what Jesus promised you, but aren't you pushing the lines just a little bit? Aren't you just, aren't you taking advantage uh, of the circumstances? You know you're not going to die there. And so you go in and you just tick everybody off. When he first gets to Jerusalem, the church folks, the Jerusalem Christians are irritated with him because he's been preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and telling them they don't have to be circumcised to become a Christian. So the church folks are upset with him. And then while he's in the temple, there are Asian Christians who see him and they say, isn't that man the, the one who hates Moses and hates the temple? And they begin to spread rumors that he's bringing Gentiles into the temple. And so these Asian Jews in Jerusalem are upset with the Apostle Paul. And he is arrested at one point. The Jews in Jerusalem are so upset with him. They're throwing their clothes at him. They're throwing dirt at him. And they're so irritated with him. And you know what Paul does when they're lashing out? He says, hold on. To the commander in Jerusalem, the Roman commander, he says, can I talk to these folks? And, and he turns to the folks who are upset with him about desecrating the temple. And he says, I didn't desecrate your temple. I love the temple. And by the way, Jesus is the temple. And Jesus has sent me to the Gentiles to bring him to himself. That's what the temple's all about. And they just loved that. They said, oh yeah, no. They began ripping their clothes again, irritated and angry at Paul. And the Jews in Jerusalem are so upset with him that the Roman commander has to step in over and over and say, guys, what is going on here? And the Romans are so confused. Why are they so mad at Paul? At one point we see in chapter 22, they think he is this Egyptian terrorist who said he was going to come in and overflow, overthrow Jerusalem wipe it out, and then he just disappeared. And the Romans are going, oh, he must be that Egyptian terrorist. No, he's a Jew. He's a Roman citizen. He's well-educated. 
We can't figure out why everyone is so mad at Paul. Paul, we can't figure out why you keep ticking everybody off in Jerusalem. And so this Roman commander finally puts Paul before the professional Jews, the Sanhedrin in chapter 23. And, and he stands before them with fire in his eyes, we see in chapter 23. Notice verse 1, looking intently at the council. After everything that's gone on in the last two chapters, Paul in the temple, irritating the Jews there, preaching about the temple that irritates the Jews there. Finally, after all the chaos, they have him before the professional Jewish council. And you would think Paul would be maybe mousy here, but he's not. The word intent means that he gets on their eye level. So he walks into this council, staring them in the eyes. He's ready for a shootout. And what he says here is, Brothers, my fellow kinsmen, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. He says, What am I being tried for? I haven't broken the law, and I've lived my life before God in good conscience to this day. I am guilty of nothing. And the assumption here is, if I'm not guilty of anything, all of the Jews in Jerusalem who are upset with me, they must be guilty of something. Because I'm innocent. I haven't done anything wrong. You're the ones who are guilty, and that would be blasphemy. And so the high priest, verse 2, commanded those who stood by him, strike him on the mouth, punch him in the face, shut him up. And we see that debate here in the first century that was the way real men debate it. I don't like you. I'm going to throw my shoe at you. I'm going to yell. I'm going to scream at you. This is the way they, they, they dealt with their issues. And the high priest here says, punch him in the mouth. Strike him in the face. And Paul said, not scared at all. God is going to strike you. You strike me, God's going to strike you. You whitewashed wall. Are you setting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Do you understand your hypocrisy? Here, this high priest Ananias, he served for 10 years. And he was a man who was so corrupt. He used to steal from the offerings to the temple. He was a man who had allegiances to Rome that drove the Jews crazy. Eventually, when Jerusalem is overtook, Ananias is killed by his own people because they are so irritated and angry with his Roman sentiments. And so they kill him because of his allegiances to Rome. And, and, and here this corrupt high priest is actually breaking the law when he calls for Paul to be struck in this way. He is striking the innocent. He is propping up these trumped-up charges against Paul. He is actually bearing false witness here. And Paul calls him out. He says, your religious pomp, it's nothing. It's a sham. You're like a wall. It's all cracked and decayed. And you tried to paint over it with your religious deeds and with your power. You are a whitewashed wall that it's about to be bulldozed by God. Notice the text continues, verse 4. And those who stood by said, 
would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, many people get this point and they ask the question, did Paul not really know this was the high priest who he was talking to? And then others say, no, he's just being sarcastic. And I have a friend who, he said, usually people interpret that according to their own temperament. If you're meek and you're quiet and you're just sort of mousy, then you say, you know, Paul didn't know. And now he's apologizing. He didn't know that was the high priest. But if you're sarcastic, then you say, no, Paul's being a jerk to the high priest. And y'all know my temperament. So y'all know what I think Paul's doing here. <laughs> Paul is being sarcastic. And that's the whole point. He looks at the high priest, the one who ruled over the council of Jews, the highest authority according to his people who he could stand before. And he says, you're a hypocrite. High priest? Yeah, right. If you were a high priest, I would honor you because that's what the law calls me to do. But you are a sham. You are a whitewashed wall that is decaying with termites on the inside. And God is going to bulldoze you over. Here with Paul, we see the difference between fake religion and the witness of a clear conscience. And we see one group with a fake religion that is lashing out in anger and fear. And yet we see one with the witness of the gospel that stands there bold and courageous. The religious leaders, they're covering things up with their power and their tradition. Paul stands there and says, I have nothing to hide. So he can be bold and courageous. Now think about Paul. The beginning of Acts... He's standing with the Sanhedrin. Remember when Stephen is stoned? They throw their coats before Saul at that time and say, we're doing this for you, buddy. He, he's been on the other side. And you would say, Paul, how can you stand there with a clear conscience? You helped lead to the stoning of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. And Paul would say, yes. And I'm covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm covered in His righteousness. And even the most vile, wicked enemy of God can stand up with great boldness and courage and declare the gospel no matter what. He is accepted by God. He could care less if these men accept Him. And that is this earth-shaking courage that should come to every Christian. You have been forgiven of your sins. You have nothing to lose. God has promised you, your corpse will be raised from the dead. Death can't stop you. You are covered in the righteousness of God. God accepts you. That should lead to just earth-shaking galactic courage in our life. We should walk around with a holy swagger for Jesus. We should. Because we have been forgiven. We can't lose. I'm talking about being a jerk for Jesus. I'm talking about you believe this message and you ain't scared to declare it. What do you have to lose? But so often we care more about what men think than what God has already said He thinks about us. We're consumed with pleasing others. 
We work hard to, to gain a name and we network for attention. And that is our goal. So many of us are paralyzed by having an image before people. By, by folks looking upon us and going, wow, they're cool. Isn't their life so amazing? Aren't their kids spectacular? The, the, their kids must, they're going to be the next Michael Jordan by the way that they talk about them and post about. They are amazing. They're amazing folks. And we are driven by that desire every day to, 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 to be liked and to have likes. And that's the reason we don't share the gospel. Because that's the one thing that if I start talking about this, I know it's going to divide. I know folks aren't going to agree with me. I know it's going to cause separation in my life. I know family members are going to look on and go, you're a weirdo, you're crazy. And what Paul says is, yeah, who cares? I, my image has already been crucified and covered in blood on the cross of Jesus. Weird? What do I have to lose? And he stands up with great courage knowing it doesn't matter what men think. God has already said what he thinks about him. And this is where our courage to speak the gospel comes from. You, you have that person you want to talk to about Jesus. Just remind yourself God loves you in Christ. And nothing in this moment is going to cause God to love you less. That person may love you less. That person may reject you. But Jesus has declared to you, He will never leave you or forsake you. And a million years from now, you're going to look back on that conversation and, and you're going to think, how petty was I not to talk about Jesus? After you've been consumed with Jesus for a million years, you're going to say, that was stupid and silly and petty. Why not embrace the boldness that comes with being accepted by God? Notice verse 6. Now when Paul perceived that one part of the Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. So Paul sizes the group up and he knows there's some Pharisees and some Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe in resurrection. They, they, they took the first five books of the Bible in a very literal way. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in miracles. The Pharisees did. They were the conservative theologians of the day. And, and, and Paul says, I was a Pharisee. Now, people say, Paul didn't know what he was doing there. They just sort of slipped out. No, Paul is being wise here. He, he knows what he's doing. He, and here we're about to see division among the council because of the resurrection. Now, both of these groups denied the resurrection of Jesus. The Sadducees hated the idea of resurrection. The Pharisees hated the idea that Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead. That man's not raised from the dead. There is a resurrection. And notice what happens as, as Paul just throws that out. Hey, remember I'm a Pharisee, guys? Oh, yeah, you're a Pharisee. And notice what happens. And when he had said this, a dissension rose between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the whole assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, no angel, no spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? 
You see, our theology allows for this moment. We believe God could have supernaturally spoken to Saul, who's now Paul, and this could be legit. But what is at the heart of their argument? They just don't like the Sadducees. And Paul has used that for his advantage. The Sadducees are standing around. Resurrection, you're here for resurrection. That's the silliest thing we've ever heard. And the Pharisees chime in. Resurrection, silly. We believe in resurrection. And the Sadducees says, yeah, you believe in resurrection. You believe in angels. You believe in spirits. Yeah, that's silly. And then the Pharisees turn, well, maybe we have more in line with Paul in our theology. Maybe Paul's right. It's the same thing I see every weekend at the baseball field. Ump makes a call. The little foo-foo's parent on this side doesn't like that he's out. They start screaming at the ump. They don't even know what happened. They were eating a hot dog. And they turn around, my kid's out. Oh, that's crazy. You're ridiculous. They start yelling at the ump. Then a parent on the other side says, he was out. I know he was out. And the ump that made the right call just goes on with the game. And the parents are screaming at one another behind him. See it every weekend at the ball field. Same thing going on here in the religious council. They could care less about Saul at this point. They just want to be right. They just want to be right according to their own worldview that they're covering up here. And now, instead of being united uh, against Paul, they began to divide. And the same thing that I see at the ballpark every weekend happens in verse 10. And when the dissension became violent, just kidding, I don't see that every weekend. The tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them and bring, them, bring him into the barracks. Now remember, the commander has to protect Paul because he's a Roman citizen. He can't be beaten and he can't be torn to pieces here among the council. But notice the description. This is violent. He's gonna, they have to go in and take him by force. And remember, the Romans were brutal people. They're not, it doesn't freak them out that there's a little division going on. It doesn't freak them out if Saul has to be torn to pieces. But they're trying to obey their law here. And when they go in, I'm sure that it was a violent scene as they rip Paul away from these two factions. But, but notice as we, as we read throughout, first of all, Paul has made everyone angry at this point. The Jews in Jerusalem are upset because he says you can't be saved by your flesh, your ethnicity, your DNA just by being a Jew. And so they are angry with him. He has said it's Jesus, not Caesar, who is Lord. And so the Romans are angry even though they're stepping in here. You have Paul who is saying it's Jesus, not your self-righteousness. And the Pharisees are angry. But Paul is saying, Jesus has been resurrected from the dead and the Sadducees are angry. And the whole city is in turmoil because of this little Jewish guy who's preaching Jesus. Everybody is angry with him. And the point is, when you agree with Jesus, it's not hard to find somebody who's going to disagree with you. And one of the things we have to be careful of as Christians is if our witness fits neatly into any little social category, it just fits in there without any rub, 
And, and we're never, even within our own networks, disagreeing with people because of Jesus, and we're just okay with that, we're probably compromising something to fit in that group. Other than Christianity, other than the gospel, other than the mission we're on together. If we just neatly fit into some political party and we never disagree and we see that as ultimate, we're probably having to compromise something with the gospel to fit there, to be comfortable there. And we see that with Jesus Himself. Jesus made everybody angry with Him. He, he was an equal opportunity offender. Everywhere he went, someone was frustrated and angry. The political powers of the day, the religious sects of the day, they were mad at Jesus. It's the same thing Charles Spurgeon talks about when he talks about being a nuisance in the world. Hear these words. He says, be a nuisance to the world. Be such a man that worldlings will be compelled to feel that there is a Christian in their midst. You can't just go anywhere and be ignored when you're a Christian. You live in a certain way that's in stark contrast. That's a nuisance to the world. And he, he, tell, he uses this illustration. He says an officer or a soldier was walking out of the royal presence, out of the presence of the king on one occasion. And the officer tripped over his own sword. And the king said to him, Your sword is rather a nuisance. And the officer replied to the king, Your majesty's enemies have often said so. Spurgeon says, May you be a nuisance. May you be like the sword to the world in the sense that troublesome, troublesome to the enemies of the king of kings, while your conduct should be courteous and everything that could be desired as between man and man, yet let your testimony for Christ be given without flinching and without any mincing of the matter, so that you are like a sword, so you are like a nuisance at times, because you love Jesus. You're not a jerk. You're compassionate. You love so well in the name of Jesus. Folks, just don't, ah, don't like that. Don't agree with you for the sake of the gospel. Be gracious, be kind, be humble, be meek. But at times, even when you do those things, you're going to be agitating to the world around you. And be okay with that. Be okay with people being frustrated with your Christian witness at times. And love them anyway. And then they'll get even more frustrated and then love them some more. And then they're even more frustrated. Why are you loving me? I disagree with you. Well, because Jesus disagreed with me. And just keep sharing the gospel. Witness like a sword, like a nuisance. Verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Here we see this Great Paul, probably at this point, nervous. Okay, I've caused all kinds of chaos, all kinds of controversy in Jerusalem. And we see that throughout the Apostle Paul's ministry. There are times where, where he seems to check up. And there are even times we look into his heart and we wonder, is Paul depressed and lonely here? And this is probably one of those moments. And the Lord Jesus comes to him. And the text, notice it says, stood by him. Jesus stood with him. The, the picture here is like a lawyer or an advocate. I'm here. I, I'm here for you. 
And he encourages him here. He says, you're doing the right thing. You're testifying the truth about me. And then he reminds him of the promise. And we're still going to get to Rome. And it's a picture of what the witness is in our life. The witness, the Spirit says, He is going to come upon you and you are going to declare the truth about Jesus from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. He's going to make you into something. And He makes you into this thing, your new identity, a signpost, Jesus is Lord, by being with you. You have the presence of Jesus with you in the Spirit. He is standing by you wherever you are, wherever you're declaring the gospel. Jesus promises He's there. But we also see this when we think about mission, we think about witness identity. The presence of Jesus is there most, it seems, when we are witnessing the truth of the gospel. Your, your identity in the Spirit is to be a witness. That's what He designed you to be. And so when you're not that, you're not what He designed you to be. And so you're fighting against the presence of the Spirit in your life. Even in the Great Commission, He says, Make disciples of all nations, and lo, I am with you to the ends of the earth. He is with us to the ends of the earth when we are making disciples. And so if you're here today and you say, I want to grow in Christ, the best way you can grow in Christ is start sharing the gospel. Start talking about Jesus. He promises as you make disciples, as you invest in others with the gospel, you make followers of Christ. I'm with you. I'm there. That's why you exist. That is the purpose of your existence. You want a little closer walk with Jesus? Start sharing Jesus. Start giving more for the sake of the gospel. As a church, we want to say, Jesus is here. Jesus is with us. How's that going to happen? When we're on mission with Jesus. Jesus is making disciples to the ends of the earth. You want to know what Jesus is doing today? He is making disciples to the ends of the earth. You want to be where He is? Make disciples to the ends of the earth. All theology, all book study, all discipleship, it is deficient if it doesn't flow, it doesn't cause the flow of evangelism from your life. It's deficient. You are learning, you are growing, you're doing a bunch of stuff. If you're not sharing the gospel, your discipleship is deficient because that's why you're a disciple. Jesus is standing with you and walking with you as you witness the truth. Notice verse 12. We're going to hit a high speed here in a moment. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat or drink till they had killed Paul. So they go on a fast. We're going on a fast before God. Okay, what's the purpose of this fast? To kill Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. So they're gathered in a dark room and notice who is there. They went to the chief priests and elders. The chief priests, the leaders of the Sanhedrin, and notice they say, I'm glad you guys are here today because we have something for you to do. We're on a fast because we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. We've had enough of him in Jerusalem. We want him dead. Verse 15, Now therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune and bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. We need to talk to him more. The last time we had Paul before us, it didn't end well. We ended up hating each other and fighting out in the street. Let's try it again. Bring him back down here. But before he gets here, make sure to kill him. And so they hire assassins. 
and they vow together as an act of worship to kill Paul. But we see in verses 16 through 22, there's a twist. Paul's nephew, out of nowhere, this is, this is in, in, in the New Testament, we never hear of Paul's relatives until right here. But he just so happens to have a little nephew who overhears what's going on. And this nephew gains the ear of the Roman commander and tells him what's going on. How does the Roman commander respond? Verse 23. So we skipped a lot there. Give me credit for that. <laughs> then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready, 200 soldiers. And he's probably going, What? This little Jewish guy running around preaching the gospel? And you need 200 soldiers for him? What, what are we about to do here? Then, no, that's not it. 70 horsemen. These were the snipers. I want 70 horsemen. And that's not it. 200 spearmen. Now, think about this. This is over half of the Roman force in Jerusalem. The Romans who were there to protect the city... They are issuing half of their forces to protect Paul now. Okay? These Jewish folks, they can't get their act straight. And now they're going to take justice into their own hands. I'll show them. Get half of our army and escort Paul out of the city. And they take him to Caesarea. And they do so by night. And there is a letter that accompanies him that says, Yes, the Jews here in Jerusalem, they want to kill this man. I can't figure out why. He's a Roman citizen, so I rescued him and I sent half of my forces to protect him. Isn't that ironic? This Paul, just preaching the gospel, and he gets a police escort out of the city like nobody has ever had. Half of the Roman army from Jerusalem is walking out of the city with him by night. Ain't nothing going to happen to him. Isn't, isn't that ironic? He's offended everybody in Jerusalem, and now he has done so under Roman protection. If you said, Paul, you're going to Jerusalem, you're going to preach the gospel, but you're, you're not going to get killed there. Why? Rome's going to protect you. You'd say, what are you talking about? That, that makes no sense. And yet, as we see this armed convoy leaving, leaving Jerusalem, we should see Jesus. Jesus is doing that. Paul didn't go in and make a deal with the Roman commander. I need some help. Get me out of the city. No, Paul didn't care if he died. To live as Christ, to die as gain. He didn't care. I don't count my life dear to myself. He didn't care. But Jesus says, we're going to Rome. How are we going to get there? We're going to get there with the Roman army. I'm not just... Paul, you're not the only one taking the gospel to Rome. I'm with you. And so he's made the Jews angry. The Romans are confused. And now, as we end chapter 23, Paul is one step closer to Rome to preach the gospel. And we see very vividly here the truth that we are immortal until Jesus is done with us. You can't die till Jesus wants you to die. And you won't die until Jesus is through using you. When Henry Martin first got to Calcutta, India, the words he wrote in his journal were, he was finally there and he said this, Now let me burn out for God. I'm finally where God has called me to be. Henry Martin was following the footsteps of his hero, which is William Carey, the father of the modern day mission movement. 
William Carey was so delighted in Henry Martin when he first met him. He said, wherever this man goes to preach the gospel, you ain't going to need any more missionaries. You just send him wherever. He has such a fire. He's going to work so hard. You won't need any other missionaries wherever he goes. And yet in six years on the field, after translating the Bible, the New Testament, in various languages and preaching, just after six years, he got tuberculosis and died a year later. He burned out in six years for Jesus. Jesus took his life in Calcutta. And yet a man who ministered the ends of the earth, we're talking about here today as being a missionary, as an example of how to live out the gospel, his effects. There were schools that were started there that, that, that still see the effects of his ministry in just six years. But we would, when he probably landed, he didn't think, I'm just going to be six years. He said, no, I'm going to be here for the rest of my life, which was just six years. Martin's also known for the phrase, I am immortal until God is done with me. The Lord reigns. He would also say this, if God has work for me, I cannot die. But even in his mind, he's probably thinking, I'm not going to die in six years. He only lived 31 years. We would look on a life like that and say, so brief. And yet, we are immortal until God is done with us, whether it's 50 years, 6 years, 80 years, whatever. You can't lose until God is done with you. And there is nothing outside His plan for you that can happen to you. You ever think about that when you're worrying? What about this? What about this financial issue? What about this I'm facing this week? I've got I've to go make this presentation. Will they like me? Will they not like me? I, I, I wonder what's going to happen with this conflict at work and you're worried, 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 worried. Have you ever stopped and said nothing's going to happen outside of Jesus' plan for me? Nothing is going to happen to you outside His plan for you. And nothing within His plan for you is going to be wasted on His mission for you. Suffering, difficulty, traffic. When you're in traffic, Jesus has you just where He wants you to be. Think about that. And, and, and he is ordering your lives for the sake of the gospel so that you would be just where he wants you to be for the sake of the gospel, your schedule, your plans. And in all of those places, Jesus is standing with you. Jesus is standing with you. Do, do you see that? You're immortal until he's done with you. Why not live out the courage that, that is packed into that thought? This life is for Jesus and he's going to use it up and spend it. Why not act out of courage? Why not give more? Why not risk more? Why not speak more? This week, just prove to yourself this is true. So even as we saw in Jason's story's uh, testimony this morning, so many people are scared to talk about Jesus and then they do it and they can't shut up about Jesus. Just start talking about Jesus. Use a conversation. Most of the people around you this week want you to tell them what you did today and why you like this church so much. They do. Why do you keep going there? It's a warehouse. It's weird. I don't know. I don't get it. They want you to say why. And your answer isn't because inside it's amazing. <laughs> no, it's just Jesus. It's Jesus. Come. I want you to be a part of it. They want you to tell them. Start speaking and prove to yourself you're immortal until God is done with you. 
And some of you here today, you, you're like all of us, really, intimidated, you're scared, you're frustrated, and you're thinking to yourself, God can't use me. God can't use me because I'm scared. I don't have the personality. I've told the story before. I almost failed high school English because I would not speak in front of my class. I had to recite a poem, and the teacher said, if you don't do it, you fail. I said, good, I'll go to summer school. I don't care. I'm not getting up in front of people. And look, God uses cowards for the sake of the gospel. And there are things in your life, even right now, that you're scared to do. That is not a sign Jesus isn't standing with you. That's a sign Jesus is standing right beside you. Because he wants to use weak, scared people for the sake of the gospel that prove the Spirit's power and authority and his grace and mercy in your life. That's where he wants you to be. Jesus will stand with you. He stood for you under the wrath of God for you. He will stand with you under the wrath of men. The question for you today is, will you stand with him? Let's pray.